It's a reading from Ephesians this morning. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again. It's good to be with y'all at Trinity. Uh, Hannah and I, Hannah's my wife, she's not able to be here today, unfortunately, uh, but I, we work together with RUF International, and we believe we have the greatest job in the world. We love what we do week in and week out. We love being on campus and meeting with students, uh, but there is no better place than being with the Lord's people on the Lord's Day. It's truly good to be a part of God's family, and it's wonderful to be here with you at Trinity Presbyterian our partners in gospel ministry. And so, again, I just want to express my gratitude, um, and we're just thankful for your prayer, your prayers, and your support. Uh, this morning, we're going to be considering this passage from Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be talking about the church, the body of Christ, the family of God, uh, of which we are a part. And so, before we dive in, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our great God and Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you would be present among us as you promise you do, that you promise you are um, among the bodies, body of Christ gathered together. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the kingdom of God and that we'd see the Lord Jesus Christ, um, our preacher of peace, as beautiful and glorious and we pray that our hearts would be filled with your love, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, do you have anyone in your life 
or at least know of someone that just seems to radiate joy. They just seem to exude joy. You know, I've come across a few of those people in my life. And as I get to know them, I notice that they have problems like we all do, of course. But they somehow have this deep current of joy running through their heart throughout the ups and downs of life. Um, David Brooks, the New York Times columnist, wrote a book called The Second Mountain. And in this book, he talks about those who seem to radiate this joy. He says those who exude joy in this life have a particular, particular pattern to their life. And he says it looks like two mountains. The first mountain, he says, is the mountain of establishing one's own identity. It's getting into the right school. It is separating from parental influence. It is establishing one's talents and ego. It's making a mark in this world. It's, uh, it's what the uh, sociologist uh, Robert Bella in his book Habits of the Heart calls expressive individualism. The purpose of life on this first mountain is to forge one's own, own identity in contradiction to family, maybe, friends, political, religious communities. On this first mountain, your core identity is that which would be expressed if you did not cave into the external pressures that push you into conformity. However, he says, once you reach the peak of this first mountain, something happens. Either you make it to the peak and you say, is this all there is in complete intimateness? Or life knocks you sideways through a personal tra uh, tragedy. In either case, you are now in the valley. And it's in the valley that either people turn inward to, in their despair or they're turned outward and made into something beautiful. The world says, I want individual freedom, but they want independence, intimacy, responsibility, and commitment. It is in the valley that they learn to love their neighbor. They are enlarged by their suffering and they rebel against their ego. They don't totally reject the first mountain. They're still ambitious, but they make their home on this second mountain. And the way Brooks argues that you know you're on the first or the second mountain, is you ask yourself, what is my ultimate appeal? Is it to self, or is it to something outside of self? You know, if the first mountain is about defining self and defining, building ego, the second one, is, second one is about shedding ego and losing yourself. The first mountain is about acquisition. The second is about contribution. The first mountain is elitist. It's about moving up. The second is communal. It's about coming to a community that has needs with your own needs, coming arm in arm and working together. It's about surrendering to a community, making promises, and building a thick jungle of loving attachments. He says this is the second mountain, and it's where those, it's where those who live find that, find that abundant joy. It's where they radiate joy. In the passage we just read, Paul is in some sense inviting us to the second mountain because he's inviting us to a community, a beloved community in which we are to belong and live together. He's inviting us to live out the reality of the church of Jesus Christ. 
Living in community, as you know, is not an easy task. It is, it's challenging. And the Bible is honest about this. You know, there, after the fall, there is disunity between Adam and Eve. There is alienation between God and man. And in this letter to Ephesians, there seems to be division between groups of people within the body of Christ. And so Paul writes this letter to bridge that divide, to make unity in the place of disunity. And isn't this true in your own experience? Have you not felt the pain and strain of damaged relationships? Have you not felt like you have not belonged? Have you been lonely? A recent poll just found that 47% of all Americans feel lonely, lacking meaningful relationships and connections with others. It seems like the ideology of expressive individualism, for all its good contributions, has left us as individuals pursuing our own goals and our own self-expressions by ourselves. But God comes to us this morning to empower us to belong. He comes to help us live in community with one another, live in the body of Christ. He wants us to have a place to belong and have a place for others to belong. And it's in the church. He wants us to truly belong as ourself, but made new. And so in order, in order to bring this about, Paul reminds us of three great realities that I want us to think about this morning. First, he says, remember that you were far off. Remember that you are, were brought near and remember to whom you belong. So my goal this morning for us as we think about Ephesians chapter 2 is that we would have a heart full of humble gratitude, that we would have a radical commitment to the body of Christ, and that we would have an unbreakable sense of our belonging. And so let's look together first at, remember you were far off. Verse 11, Paul says, there are these two groups within the body of Christ in the church of Ephesus. You have those whom he calls the Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision. Those are basically all the peoples, all the nationalities outside of ethnic Israel. And then he says there are those who are called the circumcision. This is ethnic Israel, of which Paul himself is a part. And Paul says in verse 13 that the Gentiles were far off. And how were they far off? Verse 12, he says a few ways. He says, we were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. To say that we were separated in Christ, from Christ in the old covenant is to say we did not embrace the promise of the Messiah like the people of God in the Old Testament. In fact, we didn't even know what the Messiah was. Christ, you know, is simply a translation of the word Messiah into Greek. It referred to that great promised king of Israel that was going to bring salvation to the people of God. One scholar notes that Gentiles, before they became Christians, would not even have known the term Christ. It was an exclusively Jewish concept. We were outsiders to the commonwealth of Israel. We were ignorant of God's plan of salvation. We did not know the promises of God. We did not belong. But you know, from the beginning of the Bible, God's plan was to bless the nations. Way back in Genesis, you remember what God says to Abraham? He says, I will surely bless you, and in your offspring shall all the nations be blessed. And throughout the Bible, we see God's special concern for the foreigner residing in the land of Israel. 
But this promise of international blessing, for the most part, seemed underrealized or unrealized. That is, until Jesus Christ came. After the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Gentiles joined themselves to the people of God in an unprecedented fashion. They awoke from their spiritual slumber. They embraced the God of Israel incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. They turned from their false gods to worship the one true God of Israel. And this was surprising for everyone. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul calls the inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God a mystery that was concealed but now has been revealed. And because no one was prepared for this, much of the New Testament is about dealing with this new reality. And so this was the case in Ephesus. So Paul, in order to foster the kind of community that was to be characteristic of the people of God, he pins this letter. And he says, the first thing you need to know is that you were far off as outsiders. But not only were you far off as outsiders, he says in verse 12, we had no hope and were without God in this world. Our hopelessness was due to the fact that we were without God. Now we know without God here doesn't refer to atheism. In fact, most of the peoples of the Roman Empire were deeply religious. They had many, many gods. It was integrated into their life. Without God here means without God as your God. You remember the promise that goes through the beginning of the Bible to the end. It's the promise of I will be your God and you will be my people. And this was not our case. We were hopeless. We were hopeless because we were in bondage to our sin like slaves. We were condemned by our sins like criminals. We were held in the grip of idolatry. We were hopeless, most of all, because we were on the path to what Paul calls eternal destruction in another letter. Our futures were dark and grim. We were on the way to receive the righteous judgment of God. Now, these facts are not very pleasant, right? The fact that we were outsiders, ignorant of God's promises, on the road to judgment, those are not, those things don't make you happy necessarily, right? They're not pleasant realities. So what, why does Paul want us to remember this about ourselves? Well, I think there are a couple reasons he wants to remember, us to remember our former hopelessness. First, he wants to instill in us a deep heart of humility. You know, division among groups of people stems from feelings of superiority. It is from an exaggerated view of oneself and one's group. And so there's a warning here, and it's that great redemption comes with great temptation to self-righteousness. When we believe what we have is self-achieved, we look down on others, and that creates distance between us and them. There's a rift created When we look down on another person, we turn that person into an object, a tool to make us feel better about ourselves. When we gossip about other people, we dehumanize them in order to make ourselves feel superhuman. When we boast of our individual greatness, we disparage the community and the group. So Paul here is trying to set a dam up for the overflowing self-righteousness that destroys intimacy and community. 
Second, Paul wants us to delight in our forgiveness. He wants us to cherish it. You remember that interaction between Jesus and the Pharisee in in the Pharisee's house? A lady comes in who is a prostitute. She's at the feet of Jesus. She's weeping. She's washing his feet. She's pouring on him precious perfume. And that Pharisee thinks to himself, Oh man, if this, if this truly was a prophet of God, he would know who was touching him, for she is a sinner, he says to himself in disgust. And then Jesus replies, He who is forgiven little loves little. You see, the Pharisee wasn't forgiven less. He just didn't know how much he was forgiven. And so Paul here is trying to fill our minds and fill our hearts with the greatness of God's forgiveness to us so that he might create in us a heart of love towards him and towards others. Paul says first, we need to remember that we were far off. But something happens. Second, he also says we need to remember we were brought near. Verse 13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Here Paul undermines any notions of inferiors in the kingdom of God. You were far, but you were brought near. You were brought in. You were brought in completely and fully and not partially in. This far near language makes us think of the Old Testament temple, right? The closer you're, the nearer you got to the temple, the more strict it became, the more exclusive it became. Think about the most holy place in the temple, where the tabernacle was, where the sacrifice would be made. One man, once a year, would go into that section of the temple in that, to make sacrifices for the people. So in some ways, we were all far from God's presence. And in Paul's day, Gentiles could definitely not enter the temple. Uh, There was, in verse 14, it says that Paul mentions the dividing wall of hostility. This actually refers to a wall that was found in the temple in the first century called the Sorig. This was a four and a half foot wall that that demarcated the court of the Gentiles. And Josephus, a first century historian, writes about this wall. He says that there were 13 stone inscriptions erected along this wall that warned the Gentiles not to enter the temple under penalty of death. In fact, we have found two of these inscriptions uh, in Jerusalem, and they read, No foreigner shall enter the court or around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. This four-foot wall was symbolic of the tremendous division that existed between Gentiles and Jews in the first century. And not only was there this wall, verse 15 says there were these commandments expressed in ordinances that were intended to keep Israel separate from the nations. Specifically things like circumcision and the food laws. But something happens. These communities who were far off were brought near together. Verse 13 says they were brought near through the blood of Christ. Jesus was the Lamb of God. He came and he bore the penalty of our sin. He washed us and made us clean. He became our high priest. Do you remember what happens at the crucifixion? Some strange things happen, right? The the sun is darkened. The earth quakes. And then what happens in the temple? 
The curtain in the temple that separated us from the presence of God was torn in two from top to bottom, symbolizing the fundamental shift that happened between our relationship, between us and God. And this change in our vertical relationship with God has a fundamental uh, effect on the way we relate to one another in the church, in the people of God. We are to have no more walls. There is peace between us. We are one new man. We are ourselves together made new. So there's some implications to this way of viewing things. First, it it meant that the Gentile Christians did not have to become Jewish Christians. Gentile Christians did not have to adopt certain Jewish practices that were grounded in the old covenant dynamics of their relationship with God. They did not have to embrace circumcision. They didn't have to eat the same food nor wear the same clothing. Unlike the old covenant, the new covenant afforded us with much more cultural flexibility. Some scholars point to this fact as one of the main reasons that Christianity has been able to transcend all national boundaries, go all across the world, and do so with indigenous leadership. Think of this. For Islam, the center of its influence still remains the Middle East. For Hinduism, its center of greatest influence still remains India. But for Christianity, it was first led by Jews in Jerusalem. It later was led by Hellenists in the Mediterranean. Then it was received by the barbarians of Northern Europe and traveled to North North America. Today, more Christians live in Africa, Latin America, and Asia. They have the most Christians. On Sunday, more Anglicans gather on the continent of Africa than in England. More Presbyterians gather in South Korea than in Scotland and the U.S., If trends continue as they are today, there will be more Christians in China in 30 years than in the U.S. The church, believing the same thing, Christ Jesus and him crucified, practicing the same things with word and sacrament, are doing so in their own language, with their own instruments, in their own skin, beautifully, reverently, but in ways that are authentic. The Gentiles were to be genuinely a part of the people of God as their genuine selves, God calls us to be a part of this community as ourselves made new. Second, this also meant that Jewish Christians were not to force Gentile Christians to conform to no longer essential cultural markers. Now, surprisingly, the majority of the people reading this letter were Gentiles because it was written to the church of Ephesus and the surrounding churches. But since Jerusalem was the center of Christianity, the Jewish Christians provided key leadership. You know, Jesus was ethnically Jewish, The disciples were all Jewish. Paul himself is ethnically Jewish. So among this Jewish community, the Jewish Christian community, there was this party called the Circumcision Party. And they advocated that Gentile Christians adopt the old covenant sign of circumcision. And so this was a big controversy in the early church. So much so that in Acts 15, there is a church council that gathers to decide the issue. And ultimately, they decide, as Paul has here in this letter. But in the meantime, there was a strong movement to the contrary. And so on the one hand, Gentile Christians would feel pressure to conform. But on the other hand, they would act in arrogance toward the Jewish community. That's why in another place, Paul tells the Gentile Christians not to act arrogantly towards the Jewish community, which was a real problem then has been a problem throughout church history and is a problem today. And Paul teaches that there is no place for anti-Semitism nor any 
form of racism within the Christian community. And as we think about our group dynamics today, we are called to, as followers of Jesus, to be those who are culturally flexible and inclusive. We are, we are to have the heart of Paul who said in another letter, I become all things to all people. And third, this meant that we are to work this out together. Verse 15 says they were one new man, not two new acquaintances. Paul did not call them to create two worship services, two groups to gather in, but to come together with all the pains and pleasures of the nations mixing to the glory of God. This was a two-way street. That's important to note. Not the weak capitulating to the strong, nor the subdominant to the dominant. Verse 17 says, Christ established peace, not domination, but both coming together under the lordship of Jesus Christ. They were to remember that they were brought near to God and near to one another. Third and finally, he says, we remember to whom we belong. Just the other day, Hannah and I were reading Mark chapter 2, where Jesus heals the paralytic. Uh, we were reading this story with some Chinese friends in our home. And um, you know what happens in Mark 2 with Jesus healing the paralytic? Jesus is in his hometown. People have heard about his great miracles, and so they're gathered at his house. Jesus is like totally encircled. No one can get to them. But there are these four guys who have this friend who is paralyzed. And so they pick him up on a mat and they're bringing him to Jesus. But they can't make it to Jesus because he's crowded. And so they do something quite radical. They take the man on the mat up to the roof of the house. And they tear open the roof and they lower this man down to the feet of Jesus. And so I ask our Chinese friends after we read the story, what do we learn from this? And one of our friends, she said, we need to be Matt Christians. And I was like, what do you mean Matt Christians? And she said, well, my pastor back home says that we need to be Matt Christians. We need to be those who come together on the four corners of the mat and help one another come to the feet of Jesus. In other words, our love of God ought to bring us together in love with, of loving support of one another. You know, we have much to learn from the Chinese church. Speaking to the Gentile Christians in verse 19, Paul says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God. We were outsiders, hopeless without God, but now God has made us fellow citizens, members of his household. Notice here, Paul is not telling them to do something. He is making a statement about ultimate reality. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German Lutheran pastor who stood up to the Nazis and lost his life, wrote in his book, Life Together, Christian brotherhood is not an ideal which we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ Jesus in which we may participate. This is something God has done. And so when you buck against this trend, you, try, you are trying to bend ultimate reality. Now, Paul is asserting this because he wants us to live in accordance with this. He wants us to live this out. He wants us to live out the reality that we are fellow citizens. We have rights and responsibilities. We are to live in accordance to the scriptures and to live with one another as members of the same society. We are to live out the realities of family membership. Through Christ Jesus, we all have been adopted into the family of God. We are his children. We are brothers and sisters with one another. 
And so our lives should be filled with mutual concern and affection that exists within families. So how do we live in this reality? Verse 20 says, We are being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Verse 20 says, 21 says, We are being joined together. We are being built on something and we are being built into something together. We are being built upon the apostles and prophets. You know, at the very beginning of the church, we devoted ourselves to certain practices We can read about this in Acts chapter 2. It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Theologians call these things listed here the means of grace. How do we begin forming in us a family resemblance to Jesus, his son? There's no secret strategy. It's through devoting yourself to the apostles' teaching, which is recorded for us in the Bible. It's through devoting yourself to the breaking of bread, which we do, or about to do in the Lord's Supper. And it's through prayer, especially for one another. Bonhoeffer later says in Life Together that a Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intercession of its members for one another, or it collapses. I can no longer hate a brother for whom I pray, no matter how much trouble he causes me. It's important to know that we are being built. We, nor any church, is perfect. And some of us here this morning have been hurt by the church. And this is especially the time that we need brothers and sisters to come beside us to advocate for us. Some of us here, though, have not been hurt by the church, but we're just kind of disappointed with it, right? So the first thing we need to do, if that's the case, is consider if you're a part of a faithful church like Trinity that loves the Bible, loves people, and is built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, as Paul says in verse 21. But the second thing we need to do is we need to, as Bonhoeffer says, we need to uh, ask ourselves, are we here to serve or to be served? Bonhoeffer later says in Life Together, the person who loves their dream of community destroys community. But the person who loves others around them will create community. We need to recognize the problems that exist within the body of Christ filled with people who are broken and needy and then labor together participating in the community of God by loving those around us. And so why is this important? Why should we have a radical commitment to this people? Verse 22, Paul says that you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You know, something happens differently when we are gathered together than when we are alone with God by ourselves. We become, when we are together, a dwelling place for God's special presence. In the Old Covenant, you remember God's special presence dwelt in the Holy of Holies. But now, in the new covenant, God's special presence dwells in the gathering of God's people together. There once was this older Christian and younger Christian sitting by a fireplace. And so the younger Christian began to complain about organized religion. Uh, He asked the older Christian, you know, can I just follow Jesus on my own and not be a part of a local church? And so the older Christian sat there in silence for a few moments and he grabbed a tong and picked a piece of coal out of the fire and he set it on the ground. And they sat there in silence as that one coal went from a bright shining orange 
to a dark black. And the young Christian had his answer. It is in the presence of God, it is in the gathering of the people that we find joy, strength, and are filled with love. We cannot live the Christian life alone. We belong to God. We belong to one another. If you're here today and you are lonely, if you don't feel as you belong, Jesus says, come to me as you are. You belong to me. He invites you. But know this, he not only invites you to join to him by faith and repentance, he invites you to join yourself together with the family of God. He invites us to belong as ourself, but made new in the Lord Jesus. Amen.